to Acts chapter 26. I wanted to pray for that before we got into our reading here this morning where we're studying on Sunday morning in the book of Acts because by the time we got there, I would have forgotten uh, to pray for it. So if you're with us this morning without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you wave and get their attention, they'll get that into your hands, marked to where we're studying today. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 26, and then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and he answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am a judge for the hope of the promise made by God to the fathers. To this promise, our 12, uh, to this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. And I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to, in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all of the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer 
that he would be first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as we always do because the gratitude never weakens week by week, but it only increases. We've heard so many voices this week, so many opinions, so much information, so many attempts to conform us, Lord, in this week, and how wonderful it is, Lord, to come and gather around Your Word and to be able to hear it and understand that it comes from Your heart and it comes from Your throne. And as we will heed it and learn from it and obey it, it will never disappoint within our lives. We want You to know we love to be conformed into Your image, Lord, and the image of Christ by Your Word and by Your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would use this time in your word this morning to accomplish just that. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul, in the context of where we are here in uh, Acts chapter 26, is that he stands in a great Roman hall in the city of Caesarea, the Roman capital in that uh, province of the Roman Empire that is on the coastline of the uh, sea, uh, Mediterranean Sea, and there in Israel. He is surrounded, as you might remember last week, by all of the pomp, all of the majesty uh, of Rome within that uh, great building and all of its colors and all of its architecture, as well as being surrounded by the Roman governor Festus and, and with him the Roman uh, ki uh, the king uh, uh, who served as a king under the, at the pleasure of Rome, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, all of the great Roman military officers uh, within the region were assembled together, and then all of the rich and the powerful and the famous of Caesarea were there as well. The purpose for this great gathering was plainly declared by Festus uh, that in so many words, it was because of the incompetent handling of Paul's situation uh, not only uh, by himself, by Festus himself, but that also the mishandling of the situation by his predecessor, uh, Felix, that it left uh, Festus with a very, very embarrassing problem. Paul has now uh, been forced to appeal to stand before Caesar to, uh, to hear his case concerning the legitimacy of his imprisonment, and to Caesar he must go as a Roman citizen uh, having made that uh, request. But Felix here is, is in the, the awful place of sending now a prisoner to stand before uh, Caesar, and he has no charges. Uh, that, uh, that have been established against him. This would have been an embarrassment that he would have wanted to avoid at all costs, even as he stands before this august group of people there in that hall, and candidly, and, and uh, diplomatically, but candidly, everybody is saying, yes, we understand that this is, you are in the predicament that you are in because of the dithering of your predecessor and because of your mishandling of Paul's situation as well. As we mentioned last week, it, 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 you, you, his lack of guile is very, very commendable. He is, he is sincerely in a pickle, and he sincerely wants to find a charge 
uh, to send Paul off to Rome with. When everyone in the room had been gathered uh, and then had been seated, King Agrippa in verse 1, we see, gave Paul permission to speak, to address the group. And remember, at that particular point, though we've read it and now we know what Paul was going to say in that room, at that moment, nobody in the room, the king himself, nobody knows what in the world Paul is going to say to them. If you put yourself in the king's place and in the audience's place, you would uh, automatically assume that what Paul is going to do is use this as, as an opportunity uh, to uh, lay a case for his innocence against, uh, against all of the charges that the Jews had brought against him, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> or that he would use the opportunity to go on a excuse me, or that he would go on a tirade against the corruption of the uh, Roman justice that he had uh, been exposed to at the hands of these two, <clears throat> two governors. And so, uh, as we look at what Paul does here, though, he doesn't do anything of the sort. Instead, he disregarded both of those kind of tacks that he could have gone on, and no doubt he was probably emotionally and mentally tempted to use the opportunity to declare both of those things and establish them before all of these powerful and uh, prominent uh, people. But instead, he used this opportunity to give them his Christian testimony, to give them his salvation story, his story of who and what he was before he became a Christian, how he became a Christian, that contact with Jesus Christ, and then the life that he was living in obedience to Christ since becoming a Christian. And in doing so, as he gives them the, his testimony here, he used this as an opportunity to declare the gospel to them as it's woven in through his, his testimony, to confront them with their sin and their need for God's forgiveness, but then also to inform them of the salvation that God has provided to them and to us uh, through faith in His, in his Son. And after all, as you put yourself in Paul's shoes, as he's looking at this crowd, he has to be thinking to himself, he could never in a million years ever produce an audience like that. If he had sent, if he had sent invitations to all of these people, none of them would have come to any meeting that he was overseeing. If he had given them, each of them offered them money to come, he wouldn't have gotten 99% of this crowd, and yet this crowd is before him, he, and he knows exactly the reason that the crowd is before him. It's an opportunity that God is giving to him not to raise his complaint about how he's been treated, but to, to declare the gospel to them. And I don't think it was lost upon Paul. You remember when he was uh, saved on uh, his journey to Damascus, he goes into Damascus, and God uses a servant by the name of Ananias to uh, ultimately come to Paul, pray for him as he's in his blind condition in that uh, upper room there, and, and for the scales to be of blindness to come off of his eyes. But when Ananias protested, when God told him that Paul had been saved and to 
go and assist this man in any way. He, he protested to the Lord and said, haven't you heard what this guy's doing? I mean, you get a guy like this blind, keep him blind. It'll be that much harder for him to do what, he, what it is that he's doing and destroying your people, imprisoning them, some of them dying, uh, forcing them to deny their faith and so forth. And the Lord spoke to Ananias, and he said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And here he sees, and I have no doubt that that prophecy was communicated to Paul, and here he sees the fulfillment of it as he has these <clears throat> Gentiles and kings seated before him. We're not going to study Paul's testimony in any kind of depth this morning for the simple reason that we've examined it twice before in the book of Acts, once in uh, chapter 9 and again in chapter 21. This is the third time that Paul, uh, we have his testimony recorded in uh, the book of Acts, and I think surely it, it's recorded for us three times here so that we as Christians never lose sight of the value of our testimony, the powerful vehicle that it is by which to communicate the gospel to people and, uh, and have it repeated three times within the book of Acts uh, to remind us to be uh, aware and alert to opportunities to share our testimony and the gospel as a result as the opportunity arises to do so. In each one of these three testimonies, each one of them is fundamentally the same. But there are differences in each one of them, and the differences occur because Paul is in front of different audiences. This is a very, very secular uh, audience, a very Gentile audience, a very wealthy audience. Uh, other times he gave his testimony before a very Jewish, power, very religious environment. And so, looking at who it was that was in the room, and he uh, fashioned, his, his, his uh, testimony was the same always, but what he chose to emphasize out of that testimony uh, depended upon the audience that was in front of him. This is called contextualizing, understanding whom I'm in front of. What do they need to hear from my testimony? What do I emphasize? What do I maybe de-emphasize in order for it to be impactful? And Paul, we see that was a, a master uh, of this. For instance, in this test, uh, version of his testimony, Paul spends a, a lot of time focusing on the resurrection because of the uniqueness of the audience that's in front of them. And he's going to give uh, uh, and will give attention to his emphasis on the resurrection uh, a little bit more the next time. We won't, uh, we'll be another week in this uh, chapter uh, studying it, as well as uh, next time looking at the fascinating response of both Festus and uh, King Agrippa to uh, Paul's testimony, to his sermon, and called to them uh, to be saved. But this morning, I want to give our attention to just a single verse, and that is verse 18. And you'll notice in ver as you look at verse 18, if you are reading from uh, a red-letter uh, Bible, and that you notice that it's written in red because it is the very words of Jesus here. And here you have Jesus' commission to Paul. And within this commission that he gives to Paul, you have this incredible and really priceless description of the gospel. 
It comes from the mouth of Jesus Himself. You wonder how He sees the gospel. You wonder what He sees the advantages of it. What does He emphasize in terms of the gospel? This description here of what He desires to do in the life of every single man, every single woman, every single child in this room and in the entire world, a description of what only God can do in a human life. And everything that he lists here, and he lists five some things here, every one of them in and of themselves is absolutely priceless, indescribably priceless as, as we would look uh, at them. Uh, there's a famous commentator and a pastor. He was a contemporary in London of Charles Spurgeon, so he kind of gets lost in Charles Spurgeon's uh, shadow a little bit as a result. His name was Joseph Parker. And Joseph Parker put it this way in terms of verse 18. Should anyone ask, what does Christianity want to do in the world? Point them to this verse. That is our answer. And that is very, very well put and very, very true. So we'll look at verse 18 with kind of a twofold uh, application. For those of us who are already Christians, just a chance to stop and remember. I've been saved for a long time now, many, many decades. And I never mind a passage in the Bible that brings me back to the simplicity of all of this to remember the things that have happened in my life because of Christ. For decades now, I've lived in the richness of the Christian life, the richness of the new birth and what God does. And sometimes I just need somebody to stop me a little bit and to make me focus upon these things that I've become so accustomed to that I've lost my awe related to them. And Paul does that here. Uh, for those of us who are Christians. And then if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, for you to understand what it is that God wants to do in your life, what He will do in your life if you'll only invite Him to do so. You notice, Paul, as uh, 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 it's described here in verse 18, Jesus' the description is that first He has come to open our eyes. And the Bible teaches that Every single one of us that's born into this world, that we are born into this world spiritually blind. And this is what Jesus was referring to on that one Sabbath morning when He returned to His hometown uh, of Nazareth. He goes into uh, the synagogue, and He is given the scroll uh, to read from. It is a scroll of Isaiah. He finds the place. He finds this uh, Scripture uh, deliberately, and it is a Scripture having to do with the fulfillment, uh, His coming fulfillment of it as the Messiah. And we're told in Luke's gospel, as he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, he opened it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives for our purposes this morning, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then He closed the book, and He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on Him at that point, and He began to say to them, today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This blindness 
This spiritual blindness that each of us is born into the world with is a consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve, the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient uh, Garden of Eden. And it is a consequence of that fall that each of us bears. And this spiritual blindness is a profound blindness. Physical blindness is the inability to see the physical world, to see the physical reality uh, of the world that exists, and it just fairly explodes uh, with life all around us each and every day. A physically blind person is unable to fully see it or to, uh, or to see it at all or to fully appreciate it as a result. To be spiritually blind is to be unable to see or to recognize the spiritual realm, the spiritual world that exists around us just as fully and fairly explodes with activity all around us. I think a great example of this is in the Old Testament when the prophet Elisha is in the city of Dothan, as it's recorded in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. The Syrian army comes and surrounds the city with a great, uh, a great army. And as that army has surrounded the city and they're after Elisha, Elisha's servant, all he can see is the situation in the physical realm, and he's terrified. And we uh, read of it here, the servant of the man of God, he arose early, he went out. There was the army of Syria surrounding the city with all of the horses and the chariots. And his servant said to him, alas, master, what shall we do? He had a firm grasp of the situation in, in terms of what could be understood about it in terms of the physical. And so he answered as Elisha did to him, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, and he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It was there. It was real. It was as real as the Syrian army, but without spiritual sight, no capacity to penetrate that, to see it, to understand uh, it. There is a spiritual realm that exists and operates all around us that we are completely blind to without God opening our eyes up to it through our faith in Jesus. Our spiritual birth into the reality of that spiritual realm. The fact of the matter is that in the big picture of life and eternity, uh, to be spiritually blind is a, a far greater handicap or catastrophe than uh, uh, being physically blind. I think that, and I want to be sensitive to those that, who are blind with us uh, attending today, but I think for those of us who have had sight all of our life, if uh, somebody, uh, you know, plays the game that you might as a kid and the game that you might continue to play within your own mind and somebody were to say, of all of the senses, which is the one that you would be the last to give up? What would you, you know, usually the, the maintaining of sight is kept at the very top of, of the list. And yet, 
while a physically blind person uh, could, would never ever uh, refuse a cure, a solution to their physical blindness. Uh, from the vantage point of heaven, it must be mysterious that untold millions of people today refuse God's cure to spiritual blindness and thus continue to live a spiritually blind life. Think about this morning all of the things that we would be completely blind to without Jesus. We would be completely blind to without God's revelation uh, to us through Jesus and through His Word, the Bible. We would be completely blind. We would be completely in the dark concerning truth in any meaningful way about all of the great questions in life. We would be completely blind in attempting to answer questions like, uh, why are we here? How did we get here? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? Why is the, li is the world so messed up? Why are people the way that they are? Why are we so messed up? Why are we so broken? Why are we so fallen? Why do people die? Why does this thing called death exist at all? What happens after death? And then to think about it even beyond all of that, without God's revelation, we would be completely in the dark about God Himself. We'd be in the dark about His nature, what He's like. We'd be in the dark about truth and about sin and about salvation and about everlasting life, and not only about uh, truth about everlasting life, but also truth about how to live now to experience what Jesus declared that He offered, and as He put it, how to live life more abundantly. How do you navigate this world safely, morally, emotionally, mentally? How do you keep a grip on all of those things? How to live safely, how to speak safely, how to think safely in the brokenness and the sickness of the world that is all around us? To live completely ignorant of God's revelation concerning these things is to live blind, to live in spiritual blindness. But then to stop and think as Christians this morning in a way that we hope woos those of you who don't know the Lord yet, but how wonderful it is to be born again, to put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and salvation, and then to have our eyes open spiritually and then to see and understand things we never saw and understood before, to find God's answers to our greatest questions in life. But Jesus doesn't end there. Second, He speaks of His coming in, in order to turn us from darkness to light. And you search the Scriptures, search the Gospels, Search the book of Acts, search all of human history, and see if Jesus has ever done otherwise in a single human life. See if you can find one example in which Jesus ever led a person from light into darkness. Did He ever lead a person from sin and into uh, freedom from sin into the bondage of sin? He never did it. He always, without exception, 
all the way down through human history into this room this morning, into my own testimony and your testimony as well. He always leads a person into light. He leads us into purity. He leads us into holiness. He leads us into freedom from sin. And he does it unfailingly. He does it. However great the addiction to sin, however long the history we might have in sin, however lost in sin we might be, to come to him is to be delivered from it. It's interesting to me to watch our culture to watch it in what I think is now a, a, a tremendous pride and uh, arrogance as it isn't content now to simply reject Christianity, uh, but to do it with a, a, a disgust and, a, a, and an arrogance that uh, I don't think we've ever experienced in our nation before. And out of that arrogance to reject all of God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad, and now here we live in a culture that uh, esteems itself to be too educated and too intellectual for what they consider to be religious superstition and moral bondage. And so in jettisoning all of these things from the Bible, plunging headlong into their new morality and definitions of right and wrong, only to discover that it does not lead them into light, but it always leads into an appalling darkness and a terrible bondage to sin. And everywhere you look in our nation, where it lies under the dominion of the new morality, not only is the practice of sin exploding. It's worse than that. The addiction to sin is also exploding in terms of sexual immorality, sexual addiction, sexually transmitted disease, pornography addiction, and now the fastest growing group in pornography addiction in the United States of America is women. There is the drug addiction, alcohol addiction, substance abuse, violence, murder, assault, sexual assault, lawlessness, lying, stealing, and so forth. And what is at the core of all of it? Jesus declared it in John chapter 3. He said, and this is the condemnation, that light, speaking of himself, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I've been reading the last couple of years and uh, with some amusement and some sadness at the plight of the movie industry in the United States of America, with some sadness because uh, I love movies. Uh, I don't get to watch very many anymore, but I love them. As a kid, I love them all through my life. To me, it's the single greatest vehicle by which to uh, transport a person and, and to e extend and develop a truth or a message. And here, as is, is any of us would know, where you'd sit down and look at the newspaper or go online and say, hey, wouldn't you like to go see a movie tonight? And you look at what it is that's being offered, and your heart sinks, and you think, no, I, uh, what's on uh, Nickelodeon again, or whatever it might be. And so the receipts are down in the music, uh, in the movie industry. The attendance is down, way down. But of course it is. 
Of course it is. I mean, I look at it, even the movies that I, you know, feel I can go to and, and head in there, and I see these previews to movies that are coming. And appalled that somebody's going to spend two and two and a half hours of their life absorbing what I'm forced to now watch for 90 seconds, the darkness uh, of it. And as I look at all of it and I think to myself today, eight out of the ten of the movies are given over to an exploration of wickedness, the wickedness and the evil of the human heart, the fallen uh, heart, man's dark side, his fallen nature. And the problem with that is you can only explore that for so long before you tap out that vein, or then you have to sear your conscience and begin to portray darkness on a level that is so deep and, and so harmful that if anybody sits and watches it, you'll break down the mental and the physical and the emotional health of that person. And all the while, as I sit there and look at these kind of things, all of the while, the virtually inexhaustible and inspiring themes of goodness and virtue and bravery and valor and selflessness and sacrifice for the greater good, they go largely ignored. But our culture will come to learn concerning God's commandments that sin is not bad because God has forbidden it, but rather God has forbidden it because it is bad. The commandments of the Lord, the Bible says, are not burdensome. They are life-giving, and they are liberating. And wisely, somebody said in the course of human history, I don't know where, but somebody once put this very kind of thing this way. He counseled that before you tear down a wall, you might want to ask why people built it to begin with and to find out what it might be protecting you from. And that counsel is never truer than when it involves the protective wall that God has built in this world in the form of His commandments. Sin is dangerous stuff, and to commit sin is to become a slave of sin, always to become a slave of sin. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. All sin has a hook. It all has an addicting, enslaving aspect to it. And every sinner is a slave to their sin. Even if the culture declares that sin is not really sin and that it is not enslaving, that it doesn't develop uh, an ever greater appetite for that activity until it ultimately comes to dominate and take over a life. That's the way that the world uh, deals with sin, to rename it, to remove all negative stigma attached with it, to free it from any kind of negative connotations placed on it by God or the Bible or society, and then finally to have the chutzpah to declare this very sin, the expression of the sin, to actually be an expression of freedom, freedom from the narrowness and the bigotry of the Bible. 
until ultimately, as we see before our very eyes within the culture that we live in, the whole world becomes one giant melting pot of addiction on the one hand and one giant rehab center on the other until nobody knows where to turn for deliverance from the bondage of their sin that everyone told them was in fact an expression of freedom. And the wonderful thing about what Jesus speaks here in verse 18, if you find yourself in that place this morning, and most of us have in the course of our lives, is that there is hope for you, but there's only one hope for you, and that is in Jesus Christ to deliver you from the darkness and from the bondage of sin because He is the one, uniquely the one, who can turn us from darkness to life. And I say this morning in His presence, three cheers for the God who can deliver us from any and all sin and bondage to sin, and then not only to get us free, but then to keep us free for long decades in the remainder of this life. The one that has the power to do that, what a privilege it is. And nobody's saying it anymore, but what a privilege it is. Only the kingdom of God declares it. The privilege to live in light and purity and holiness and Christ-likeness and freedom from darkness and from sin. Jesus speaks third here of his desire to turn us from the power of Satan to God. And the Bible teaches that the unsaved world is under the power of Satan. It is under the sway of the devil. If not under the sway of his lusts and of his temptations, then surely then under the sway of his lies. Paul wrote of it in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, speaking of the devil, has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The Apostle John wrote, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway, the influence of the wicked one. And I can only say concerning myself, nothing of the world that I witness all around me every day uh, makes me doubt uh, the uh, truth of this statement that the world is under the sway of the enemy. But Jesus instructed Paul to tell the world that he had come to deliver people from the power of Satan and deliver them to God. That in this regard, that the cavalry has arrived in human history, and that arrived in the form of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, and his authority over that demonic realm was dis on display repeatedly in his public ministry as he delivered Mary Magdalene of seven demons and the demoniac of Gadara who had a, a demon in him that was called Legion. A Roman legion was 6,000 men. He was a walking stronghold of satanic <clears throat> 
power and, and satanic hold in his life. And by the time that Jesus got done with him, is before Jesus sees him, he's isolated. He is cutting himself. He is wailing through the night. He is naked. He is tormented and all. And Jesus comes to this man, and before he leaves him, he is seated and clothed and in his right mind, and more importantly, born again. In the Gospels, repeatedly, over and over, the sick were brought to Jesus, all of them in the entire city and the surrounding region. And not just the sick, but in all of those cases where it's described, those who were demon-possessed were brought for as far and wide as, as you could get them to walk to where it is that Jesus was, and He delivered all of them of the demons that had a hold upon their lives, cast them out with a word. And the book of Acts is filled with examples of this kind of power encounter where the kingdom of darkness is forced to give way to the kingdom of God and to the kingdom of light. The sweatbands uh, of, uh, of Paul and Peter, the girl with the spirit of divination in the city of Philippi, throughout the course of Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, just constantly, not as a big deal, but just doing it because it's people's needs related to being delivered from the, the demonic realm, and so he did. And human history, of course, is filled with uh, people who could uh, personally testify to the power of God to deliver them from the oppression and the possession of the devil before becoming Christians. And God is still at it today. And when people are oppressed by the devil or they are possessed by the devil, the family and loved ones, they don't send for an atheist. They don't send for an agnostic. They don't send for a philosopher. They send for a Christian. They send for someone who is connected with the kingdom of God because Jesus has crushed the devil's authority in his death and his burial and in his resurrection. As the apostle John put it in his first epistle, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Sometimes people look and they say, how come as we read the book of Acts we don't see more demon possession and this kind of thing in our culture and in our world and, and these kind of deliverances and exorcisms? And how come th that isn't uh, the case? And I simply say to them now, wait. Just wait for what has been put in on course within our culture, within our, our world. And by the time it runs its course, you're not going to have any shortage of seeing this kind of thing and needing to deal with it in the power and the authority of Christ. And yet how wonderful it is to, uh, as Christians, to now live life in complete confidence in the face of the devil's power of his temptation, of his lies. I know I'm engaged in the spiritual warfare every single day. I'm as aware of it as you are aware of it. But I'm not afraid of the devil. 
I'm not afraid of his lies. I'm not afraid of his temptations. And I'm not afraid of his devices. And it's the presence of Christ in, li- in my life and in your life that allows that to be the case. Is he a formidable enemy? He is, but he's a defeated uh, enemy. And how wonderful it is for us as Christians to think about it. We don't wake up in the morning worrying about whether the devil is going to take possession of our life or whether the devil is in control of our life and so forth. We get to live without fear or worry. We're able to respond to him and his devices with the authority that is ours in Jesus' name. Jesus then went on to speak about the fact that he had come in desiring that Paul would communicate it, uh, communicate to the world uh, in order that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. What words of praise and thanksgiving can we offer to God this morning for that blessing alone? To be forgiven of our sins the removal of that barrier that separates man uh, from God, and that barrier removed in Jesus, that God separates our sin and has done so as far as the east is from the west, and further, I don't know how he does it, but he can do impossible things, that he remembers it no more. Where in the world Can we take the guilt that we accrue in life? Where can we go when the weight of guilt bears down on us? The sins that we've committed against others, the sins that we've committed against ourselves, against our consciences, the sins that not only leave other people disappointed in us and loathing us, but the sins that we have committed that leave us disappointed in ourselves and loathing ourselves, the sins that we've committed against God, that is a lot to carry through life. And I have no argument with the leader in the field of mental health who years ago declared that if he could find a cure for guilt, he could empty the half of the population of the mental institutions in the United States uh, with that cure for guilt. And I think about how many people live life dominated by the guilt of their past and literally driven insane by it. I've seen it with my own eyes. They and we would give anything that we could to have that hour back, that day back, that event back, that weekend back, that month, that year of life back, to make all of it different. But we can't. But Jesus wants the whole world to know that one of the reasons that he came into human history as he did was to provide us with the forgiveness of sins so that for the rest of our lives, whenever we would look back upon our sin-filled past, all we would need to see is the greatness of His forgiveness and the greatness of the sacrifice that allows us to be freed from our guilt and from our shame and even the memory of it. And I think in the words of the Old Testament, hallelujah for that great gift. 
Fifth, Jesus declares here that he came in order that we might receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And here what we have is the offer of a relationship with God himself, the opportunity that Jesus extends to every single person in this world to become a part of God's family. It is the offer of everlasting life, eternity, in a personal relationship with God, the God of the Bible, and with Jesus, eternity in this rich, beautiful, holy place called heaven, as opposed to the judgment in hell and the separation from God that each of us deserves. And Peter spoke of it in his first epistle. And he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then here for our purposes this morning, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And what this offer of Jesus to mankind is, is it, is, it addresses the emptiness and the loneliness that we feel until we are in a relationship with God, because Jesus knows that there really is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every single human being. As St. Augustine said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We have been created in the image of God for relationship with God. And until we are engaged in the very thing that we have been created for, there will be a sense of loneliness and a sense of emptiness and a sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. And the reason that we feel that is until we are in that relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are missing the entire purpose for our life. No one can experience fulfillment and satisfaction in life until we are doing what we have been created to do and created by God to do, and that is to have relationship with Him. And as you look at this list here of what it is that Jesus offers, if you don't know the Lord this morning, and these are not a part of your life, and God wants them all to be a part of your life, you look at this and say, Jesus, please don't stop the, with the list until you tell me how in the world can we make all of these things ours. And so he does at the end of verse 18, and the final four words, by faith in me. And all of these things become ours when we simply trust in him as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins, as the salvation, and as the Savior. It may not please the majority of men today, but what does that matter? He is the Savior, and that is the salvation that pleases heaven and it pleases God, and we receive all of it by praying something like this. 
God, I confess my sin to you, and I ask you for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that you loved me so much that you sent your Son into the world to die on the cross is the full and satisfying payment for my sins. I turn from my sins this morning, and I honor you in the single greatest way that I can honor you, by putting my faith in your Son as my Savior. And when a person does that and prays something like that, anywhere all around the world today, including in this room and in the fellowship hall, the greatest miracle that can occur in a human life occurs, and that is God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit now comes into our lives, and we are born again by the Holy Spirit, and everything that we've talked about in verse 18 immediately, miraculously, supernaturally becomes ours. Beautiful, beautiful miracle. And so we close. Do you want to know what Christianity wants to do in the world from the very mouth of Jesus? Well, that's your answer in verse 18. And what a beautiful answer it is to give spiritual revelation from God without which we live blind concerning the most important things in life, the privilege of living in light and purity and holiness and freedom from sin the absolute confidence and authority in the face of the devil and the demonic realm, the forgiveness of sins to be freed from a lifetime otherwise of, of bondage to guilt and to shame, and then on top of it, a relationship with God and the confidence of heaven. How priceless is that list? How priceless are the things that are ours because of him. How rich we are as Christians this morning not because of these things as points in a sermon, but we recognize them to be realities within our lives. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who would love to pray with you to enter into this life that Jesus promises to you and longs to bring you into and that you will find nowhere else on any other path in life. Tonight on Sunday night, second Sunday, and so our service in the evening is, has its focus upon the Lord's Supper. And we'll spend an extended time in worship this, this evening remembering Jesus' sacrifice, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection this evening, other things that will be put on uh, others' hearts to share this evening. But maybe it's been a long time since you've partaken of the Lord's Supper, or maybe this morning's service was just something to kind of prime the pump that we might come back this evening and then spend an hour, hour and a half in worship of the God who has so changed our life and made us so rich at such an expense to Himself. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Jesus, we are so thankful that you weren't just a religious teacher or a sermon maker or promise maker, but that you made every one of those promises that you told Paul to share in verse 18, and you didn't just make the promise, but you kept them. In our lives this morning, and we thank you, and we bless you for doing so. We give you honor, praise, glory, Lord, from our hearts and from our spirits this morning that we could never put into words the gratitude that we feel toward you for not only leading us out of the life that you led us out of, but for the life that you have led us into. We bless your name, and we do so in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.